And welcome to Bamsey's Humanity First Podcast. I am Chris Ryan, along with uh, Peter Evers, and excited to be with you here on uh, Pride Month. And uh, next week uh, in the podcast, we're going to have a, a special podcast. We're going to focus specifically on that. But with the Memorial Day weekend holiday coming to a close, um, we really started to see some transitions in society and society you know, opening back up again last weekend. I was at uh, Fenway Park, which was at full capacity, and had the opportunity to speak with Rochelle Walensky, who is the director of the CDC. And you know, it seems that there is a a big push to get back to you know the the normal um, that we all knew in a post uh, excuse me a pre COVID environment and move into a post COVID environment. But the biggest piece in order for that to to take place is the vaccine. And she talked a lot about the the vaccine and how with the, the vaccine, individuals could be comfortable congregating in a place like Fenway Park without masks. We saw 17,000 people pack the TD Garden for uh, three playoff games this past weekend as well. And in, bringing in Peter Evers, the CEO of uh, Bamsey, I'm curious as to your thoughts about how society is evolving, which, which you've noticed and the role that the the vaccine is playing is more and more evidence is coming out to indicate how effective the vaccine is in not just um, helping to create an environment where individuals don't get the virus, but they also don't spread the virus. And um, this seems to be, you know, a moment in time where we are not quite at the, you know, the mission accomplished type of moment, she said, but we're getting there and the potential exists for that to take place on uh, July the 4th. Hello, Peter. Hey, Chris, how are you? Phenomenal. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's a pivotal point, isn't it, right now? I think one of the things I really worry about is that I was listening to the radio yesterday and it was about food shortages and, um, you know, the death toll in India rising. And and you might think, well, that's a long way away. Well, it's not in a world where, you know, people are traveling and, um, you know, it's really important that we as a, as a, as a, as a wealthy country and, and Europe make sure that vaccinations are made available to those countries not as well off and that's not an act of charity, is it? It's actually an act of self-interest mm-hmm. as well. So that's what really worries about worries me because we have these variants originating from various other countries. And you know, even if you even look at um, Britain, which has really done well with the vaccination, there is a virus that originated from India, which is really affecting the north of England at the moment and other places as well. So that issue about complacency, that issue about, well, we can open things up and we can, you know, behave as we did before is a little premature, if you ask me. I think, you know, at the same time, we are not going to make anybody be, be vaccinated, despite the wishes of some of the loved one of, of our person served. We're never going to do that. But we are going to uh, persuade um, and uh, incent people to do to do that because, the incentive really is the more people at our agency that we get vaccinated, the safer we are as a group and the safer the pe- people served are. And, you know, last week's uh, board report, I noticed that we are at 49% of our staff who are vaccinated. That's pretty good. We're moving in the right way. And I think once people are hearing these stories about these variants and 
and the fact that there is still risk out there. It's a, it's a strange world we live in because we're thinking, oh yeah, masks off, and you're absolutely right. In Boston over the weekend, saw very few um, masks, but all of the stores that I went into were saying, if you want to come in, you got to wear a mask. It's a sort of a bizarro world. My my feeling is that this is not the the pub. This isn't the medical safety of of us as individuals. This is the public health issue, and I think we still have a lot to do. Yeah, I find us at a, a weird moment in time, and I think you're absolutely right. Where you know, for the first time in. 15 months, I did something that I would do on a routine basis for you know the previous like 18 years of my career, and that's do a face-to-face interview um, in close proximity without a mask on. Um, those things just didn't take place for the last 15 months, and that interview was with the director of the CDC Amazing. in the back of the press box at Fenway Park. And like, if anything is safe, you figure, well, the CDC doing an interview with the CDC, but it felt weird, right? And it felt weird being indoors without a mask and being told that it was okay, even though all the evidence indicates that it is okay. And you referenced that you know some businesses are saying you don't have to wear. Uh, a mask, um, or it's making it a recommendation as opposed to a requirement, and you gotta let it go, you gotta check the sign at each restaurant or business you go in to see you know what the protocol is is going to be. And you, know, you mentioned you know, some hesitance on your part um, with the the CDC guidance, and some states have had that hesitance as well. I know New Hampshire, as an example, has had. Um, different guidance pushed forward uh, about wearing masks indoors and that fully vaccinated people should continue to wear masks indoors. What do you think is the challenge and what have you noticed at an entity like BAMSI where there are so many different um, viewpoints on what to, to do here? I mean, you have the CDC director saying one thing. You, you're not fully on board with that, it sounded like. I mean, how do you, how do you go about um, you're trying to navigate this environment where it's an important topic? It's one that creates a lot of mental angst as well. Like I think about my eight-year-old son, and he has, for one-eighth of his life now, worn a mask. And he's like hesitant to be around people who aren't wearing masks. And you know, I'm curious your thoughts on, on that and the different type of, of mixed messaging on this, on this topic. Yeah, it's funny because yeah, I, I was reading uh, a Fran Leibowitz book this weekend and she was saying that it was one of my favorite writers on on sort of social mores, but she said that she spent some time in um, in Japan and this is a few years ago and said that she just, she, she loved it, the wearing masks thing, because everybody did it. It is a social norm and people don't get as sick as they do here. And she was a hypochondriac. That was a, that was a, um, uh, line. Um, I think we've got used to it. Um, I was joking with somebody the other day that they took their mask off and there's almost an embarrassment about seeing the whole face now that you look away and you go, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but you know, we have got used to it. Look at what we've uh, benefited from in terms of flu and colds. I bet, the, I bet everybody, you know, most people have not actually contracted, contracted those colds. Why, why rush into giving up that now when we have the burden of the variants. And within BAMSI, we've formed a committee to look at this, look at space, and to look at how we return to normalcy, whatever that is. Uh, and basically what we're saying is that we'll, we'll have an abundance of caution, but each program or each uh, division and then 
um, you know, where we're doing business has to have their own plan because residential uh, with our persons of medically fragile people, we will continue to wear masks. Um, and actually this week, uh, EOHHS is coming out with another uh, line of uh, guidance around what we should be doing. So we'll wait and see what that says. But, you know, um, when we're out in the community, we'll have a different set of guidelines, you know. So I think it's just up to us to be cautious, think about how we're delivering our services in the safest way, and then referring constantly back to the issue of public health, not only within Bamsey, but in our, in our communities. I want to bring in uh, Yulia Lago, who is the Executive Administrative Officer at BAMSI as we continue the conversation about COVID and the vaccine, but also work into um, some of the, the workforce uh, issues uh, with uh, BAMSI and really across the uh, medical industry. And Yulia, the um, vaccine is something that, uh, that BAMSI obviously is leaving up to individuals to make their own determinations uh, in regards to. Um, we're giving as much information as possible, and we're also going to be uh, partnering with a couple of different entities to continue to spread um, that message across the uh, the region. Um, what's the excitement for that? And you know, what have we seen and noticed um, in regard to our workforce and the uh, the type of things that they have been able to do and to um, enjoy as a result of getting the vaccine? So the excitement for us, I think, is around um, being able to support our community and to spread um, good health information. You know, BAMSI cares about the health of the people we serve and the health of the communities where we live. So working to increase knowledge about the vaccine, um, to dispel some misinformation that's out there so people can be safe. Um, we're working with South Coast Community Foundation has given us a very generous grant to do outreach in the community. And we're also working with the Massachusetts Department of Public Health um, to understand what are some of the hesitancies in the community and how to specifically address them. Um, you know, some might be just it's difficult to get to a, a vaccine appointment. Um, people lack the resources to even schedule one. If you have to be online, um, sometimes that's a, a challenge and a barrier. Other people can't take the time off from work during certain schedules um, where there's vaccines are available. So all of this kind of contributes to um, lower vaccination numbers, which impacts the entire community. So if we can better understand that and help the state um, formulate a response, we're doing our part as a community agency. We're coming off our Mental Health Matters event, which um, was so uh, special and um, was conducted by a major media personality and Bob uh, Sosi, the voice of the Patriots. And we're going to have an announcement uh, in uh, the next little bit about another event that we're going to do with another major uh, Boston media personality around the, the COVID vaccine as a part of that um, South Coast grant. And... You know, I think that, uh, again, like each person has their own reason and rationale and vaccine hesitancy is one of those things that's very you know, difficult to place a, a consensus around why people don't want to get the vaccine. I think most are are concerned that there's something they don't know and that there's something that we don't know yet. And that's something that's very difficult to 
to address. There's others that um, feel that they you know don't uh, aren't susceptible to getting seriously sick because of COVID, but have heard from friends who have you know gotten sick and been down for a couple of days. And I got the vaccine, Yulia, Peter, and and, and others. And it, that is a truth. Um, there are and there is that fact that you're going to get sick. Well, you know, if I'm not going to get sick because of COVID, why do I want to get sick for a couple of days? And then, so uh, I think that one of the things that's been interesting to see is how different um, entities and states such as Ohio have gone about trying to incentivize people getting the vaccine. I don't think we're going to give away a million dollars at uh, at Bamsey, as far as I know. But, um, you know, I'm curious as to, you know, both of your thoughts on on that. And what what do you think is the the driving factor behind individuals not getting the uh, the vaccine? And and how do you go about trying to provide information that um, that overcomes that. I know Alex Cora, the Red Sox managers, talked about you know, trying to get to 85 percent of the, the team uh, vaccinated. And he's gotten the vaccine. He's done a PSA for the vaccine. He's had personal conversations, but he still can't get people, you know, to hit that that threshold. Um, both of your thoughts on that. Well, I'm a communication and marketing person, so I always like to look at or talk to people and ask them why, because um, making our I can't make assumptions. Um, the Times had a really nice article last week that kind of broke down the the different types of uh, vaccine hesitancy. Mm-hmm. Um, and one, as I said, are those that the cost associated with it. Even though the vaccine is free, there's a time cost and there's a travel cost. Um, there are those that um, want to wait and see. Um, you know, they want to make sure it's okay. There's system distrusters. Those, for historical reasons, don't necessarily trust the medical establishment or the government. Um, and then there are those that don't believe it's a serious threat. So one of our first steps is to do some surveys and listening to the community to see why in Brockton in particular, people are hesitant for the vaccine so we can formulate a response that addresses those concerns specifically. Do we have the, the most recent uh, data on how many individuals in Brockton are fully vaccinated? We're not. Yeah, I, I, the last I, I saw that in that area was, I think it was around the in 30 percent uh, margin, but I don't have That's the specific right. off mm-hmm. uh, offhand. Um, Peter, what are your, your thoughts on that? And, you know, there's there's that line between like you want to provide information, but you don't want to be preachy. Like you don't want to be pushy is very often like that'll be the thing that keeps the person from wanting to do it. Like if you like, I know how I am and uh, a lot of people are that way. I don't like being told what to do. And if you feel like you're being told what to do or information is being pushed on you, um, that also creates a hesitancy, particularly, um, you know, amongst uh, my dad's age group, the, uh, you know, the 65 plus conservative um, age group, they, they don't like to be told you know, what to do. So how do you go about trying to win people over um, in, in that realm? Because I think it goes across to a lot of different uh, realms in you know, psychological uh, communication and byplay. Yeah, I think it's such a good question. And I think Yulia did a really nice um, sort of recap of the different types of resistance that you have. And so, of course, each and every one of those categories needs a different um, intervention. You know, I was reading about this the other day and an anti-vaxxer said, I don't want you to tell me what I have to do, Right. but I need the facts. I want the facts. Now, facts and factfulness, um, I think the definition has changed over the last four or so years, which 
I hate to draw a line to, but I think that's got something to do with it. This notion of not for four year for a year not taking this seriously, and that fell in line with a lot of people people's beliefs about individual autonomy and those kind of things. Um, I think it is societally. I think it's about shifting the fulcrum of that debate from individual responsibility to public the public health of the country. And you are not going to do that with some people, you know, but. The patriotism piece. I think that that's that's a key part where presenting facts, like some people say, you know, I tell them one plus one equals two. They're like, nah, does it? (laughs) Like it's it's uh, it's it's a we're in a different type of society in that in that realm. And I think a lot of times, um, particularly when the facts all say a certain thing, um, the communication has to be an emotional communication. And, um, you know, a friend of mine, uh, David Brooks, who is the, the granite geek and writes for the Concord yeah. Monitor, um, said that the lottery system makes so much sense because the response very often is um, irrational, uh, with all due respect to people that uh, don't want to get don't want to get the vaccine. And therefore, the um, the solution should be as well. And the lottery is something that plays on people's emotions and that you think that you're going to, if you do something, you're going to get rich as a result of it. There's a chance that it's going to, things are going to work out well for you. And there has to be that kind of incentivized, driven mental uh, approach. Yeah, I, I, I do. And, but, but there are different things that we do with different groups, right? And, you know, one of the things that we did in the listening sessions at the beginning was we realized that, um, you know, uh, people of color would be more, uh, reticent about getting the um, vaccination on the back of <laughs> years and years of for good injustice. reason, yeah. So, so the so the idea of bringing in uh, you know folks from the from that community to tell their story about how they uh, were vaccinated was great. And when we had um, Reggie Graham come from mm-hmm. the uh, court system, he was great because he said, "Yeah, I, I was really really anxious about this." I really felt, is this trustworthy? But you know what I did? I looked at the evidence. I looked around me. I saw that people were dying unnecessarily in our community, and I took action. Mm -hmm. And that was such a powerful thing to hear from people who do have those suspicions. So it's it's about engaging people, as you said, communicating with people, having a conversation with people. And I think Yulia's point about um, late adopters is a huge one. I think there is a big wave of folks that are going to say, okay, you know, nothing terrible happened to the to millions of people. Of course, there's been the odd case, um, especially with the AstraZeneca one. But uh, for the most part, they have, you know, it's, we're lifting all of those um, restrictions where we couldn't see our loved ones. Less people are dying, you know, I think there were three over the weekend. Remember what it was like when we didn't have the vaccine vaccine and it was, you know, hundreds of people yeah. a day in the state. There is actually some movement towards managing this. And I think that is a really powerful argument to make. Actually, this is working. Now, some people will just deny, deny, deny. And, you know, when um, Shankar Vedantram, who does work as a sociologist, did work on anti-vaxxers, uh, not COVID, but previous to this. And he said exactly what you said. He said, the more you tell people, the more they double down uh, because they feel that you're preaching at them. Let 
the results and the data do the talking here, I think. I think that's a really good point. It's both the 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 data and allowing for them to see things from their own upside type of perspective. If you're a a Red Sox fan, you see that it's 100% capacity, you're 70 years old, and you want to go back to the ballpark, and you want to feel good about your experience and not be worried for the next 14 days or 10 or 14 days about whether or not you have um, contracted COVID, a great way to not be worried about it is to get the, the vaccine. And so I think there's going to be a whole bunch of contributing factors and you know, to present presenting facts and allowing for people to uh, determine fact-based information for their own um, purposes is is different. And I think that you're right about the, the number of COVID deaths is going down. There's a certain par- percentage of the population, which I don't think you're ever going to, to hit. But I do think those people that are on the fence or have hesitancy, I think that that is going to start to change. And that's how we potentially get to that 70% threshold that um, the administration and Rochelle uh, Rochelle Winsky were, were talking about on this past weekend. Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about uh, workforce issues and um, some of the, the challenges facing the industry and BAMSI as well. Um, you know, I know, know that I hear consistently across media about workforce issues and that it's one of the, the major challenges of this uh, time period. And you know, I'm curious as to how BAMSI aligns with some of those challenges we're seeing, not just in our particular sector, but also in the larger healthcare environment and you know, as a whole, um, where there's very low unemployment, not very low, but significantly low unemployment in a lot of states, but we're still seeing significant uh, workforce issues. Uh, we'll start with Yulia. You know, the workforce shortage is really across the board right now. We're seeing it in every industry. Um, there's, there's People are struggling to find the, enough employees to fill their s- open slots. Um, and what BAMSI really wants to tell people is that we, we care. Um, we've, been str- we've been working to become an employer of choice for the past couple of years, working hard to show our employees that we care about them and that there is a, a real benefit to coming to work to BAMSI, that you can grow your career here. Um, you might come in at an entry-level position, but you can get experience in healthcare, and you can get leadership development opportunities. And this is a place for you to grow and to become whatever it is you want to become, whether it's a nurse or a, a leader in some other respect, you can, you can do that here. Peter? Yeah, I think, yeah, sorry. Um, yeah, I think so. I, I was um, just reflecting um, this morning. We had our leadership um, uh, monthly um, uh, training. And it's a, it, it's a commitment that BAMSI makes that I've never seen anywhere else, that we actually gather up those people who, um, who are potential leaders and create the opportunities for them. And I also, just before that, had the experience of, uh, doing orientation for the new employees coming in and was able to say, look, this is an organization that will invest in you um, and you hopefully will invest in this organization. That's the compact. That's the deal that we make. You know, and one of the um, uh, workers, uh, new workers said, you know, I'm, I'm an LPN, um, but I'd be really interested in, in getting my RN. And I said, I'm so glad you said that because you see this as a career path. Um, you know, this workforce shortage is 
really worrying for everybody. You know, it's it's another thing that's going to get in the in the way of our economic uh, recovery. Um, this idea of getting people back into into the workforce is, is it has to happen soon. But remember, we have to be competitive. You know, this is BAMSI is one of thousands of agencies looking for the skill sets um, and and the people that are looking. So, as Julia said, we need to define ourselves differently so people say, yeah, this is somewhere I want to come. This is somewhere I want to stay. Um, and that's not just, that's not going to turn around immediately. Um, but we have, I would say, probably 15 different um, little projects within recruitment and retention that we're working on at the moment. And when we talk to our employees about why they work at BAMSI and why they like BAMSI, there's so much love for what we do. Um, our, the people here are really enjoy it. The work is really meaningful. Um, we're a family in a lot of ways. Many of the group homes operate as family unions, taking care of people, providing services, supporting one another. Um, it's a really awesome environment um, where people feel nurtured and supported. And I, I think it would be great. Um, I think people would really benefit from coming and joining our team. Yeah, I think that one of the the major benefits that BAMSI has um, that's going to uh, benefit uh Bamsey during um, this change in the work environment that we're going to have in the post-pandemic era is that uh, there's great personal fulfillment that goes along with um, working to create greater good in your community. And, um, you know, to be paid to do that is an added uh, added bonus for a lot of individuals because there's that personal fulfillment piece, which is so important. You know, I think that one of the things that's going to take place in the post-pandemic environment is that a lot of individuals have um, placed more benefit on their free time, their downtime with their kids, um, being able to work from home and creating their own environment. And many of those individuals are going to move, I think, more so into the gig economy as opposed to a um, a, a full-time type of, of position. I'm interested in both of your thoughts on you know, how you go about meeting people where they are in the the future um, aspect of the organization, where there is Bamsey and many other entities are ones that require you know a person to, in many circumstances at home as an example to be there and to care for the individual and to supply that care and to do so on a on a consistent basis. Um, do you do you think that the workforce has changed in its mindset moving forward to a more of a remote, make your own schedule, work as you please, play more often, be a bigger part in your kids or parents or grandparents' lives? And how does a a entity adapt to what may be a new environment? So, Yulia, can I take that one and then you can give the real answer? No. <laughs> um, so so I would I would flip that question completely. Sure. Um, I think the gig economy has put young people, low-income young people, further back than they were before. Mm -hmm. We talk about disruption. People love the word disruption. I really question the word disruption because what it means is the shifting of liability away from these gig economy employers to the employer. You're, you're a contracted worker. Therefore, we don't have to worry about um, workers' compensation. What about benefits? You're on your own. Go and buy it in the market. Think about what we do now. We do the opposite of that. We say, we want you here. 
We want you here for a long time. We want to develop your skill sets so that they can help both. That helps both of us. And we'll give you benefits uh, and we'll give you a, a career ladder, both through pay and for what you can learn here. And I'm getting to the point now, Chris, where I'm saying this is a no brainer. Mm -hmm. This is not about being good for people. And I can say this because I have two 20 somethings who work in the gig economy. They're still on our payroll because they couldn't live doing what they do or they or get or afford benefits. So I think I think it's more about about really yelling from the rooftops about what the benefits of a full-time job are. And yes, we can be flexible with people, absolutely. But it doesn't mean that they'll get less pay. We'll just work around those things. I, I, I That's my take on it. I just see it very differently. I think that's a really good point in that security piece where there is a lot of angst and anxiety of wondering you know, where your next uh, gig is going to come from and you know what if the economy goes down what if your your sector gets um is different uh in terms of the the the, the pay aspect and having you know the security of a full-time job is something that is you know, certainly uh very uh, beneficial so I, I guess it's kind of marrying those two things you're talking about before providing the flexibility for uh the individual to be able to do and go to the things that they want and to to have that strong work-life balance but also have the the benefits piece uh Yulia. yeah well peter was talking i was thinking of janice joplin and freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose um and yeah the freedom of the gig economy is that you there's nothing left to lose you don't <laughs> um at bamsey you you have those benefits as peter was talking about but you also have a supportive environment um you know, we've, we've been experimenting now with more flexible schedules for people in certain positions. And that doesn't mean you come and go whenever you want. You have a schedule, but you can you can adjust it. So maybe you only want Wednesday mornings and Thursday evenings. Um, but again, when I'm talking to staff, what they say is really great is that their coworkers, if in the middle of a shift, they have to run out for 10 minutes. Or if, you know, oh gosh, a kid got sick, I've got to leave early. People scramble and cover for you. Um, you're, you're there to support each other so you don't lose out um, and you don't get, they make sure the person served are always cared for um, and everyone is willing to pitch in and do what's necessary for that. So you have a team and I think that's really important. Yeah, and uh, just, just one observation from the weekend, big article in the Globe about how Uber was failing and you know why it's failing? because the prices are ridiculously high now, way more than getting a taxi. You know why? Because people don't want to do it because they're making three to four dollars an hour after they've taken in consideration the wear and tear on their car. I think that story tells a great deal about where we're at. We're still here. We're still providing care to incredibly vulnerable uh, people. We're, we're changing people's lives and people can be a part of that. And we'll be here for a lot longer than Uber. Peter, thank you so much. Julia, as well. Have a great uh, rest of the day, and thanks for uh, taking some time. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. That is it. Julia Lago, as well as Peter. <laughs> let, let me finish, then you can talk. There's Julia Lago, as well as Peter Evers. I am Chris Ryan. Have a great rest of the day, everybody. <laughs>